Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Today's topic is a hot topic. It's so hot because very recently, the U.S. Senate passed Senate Bill 744 on June 27, 2013, for sweeping comprehensive immigration reform, or CIR, as we refer to it in immigration parlance. This bill has uh, been titled the Border Security, Economic Opportunity, and Immigration Modernization Act. Of course, the House of Representatives is now working on its own version of the bill, and while neither you nor I have a crystal ball about what may or may not happen, we thought it was extremely important for you all, whether you're in the HR position, in-house general counsel, business owners, etc., to truly understand the framework under which we're all operating. And one of the two House of Congress has already passed this bill, so some version of it may pass in the House. It may never pass, but it's extremely important to understand where we're going and how the government is starting to look at immigration. And when clients ask me for the past 20 or 30 years, you know, do we think a new bill will be passed? Do we think there will be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel? I've always thought that may or may not happen, but this year is the first time I'm saying there is a chance that something could pass. So in today's teleconference, we will discuss with you the Senate bill, of CIR, with a special focus on how it would impact you as employers if the bill were finally to pass into law. We will also touch upon some of the major trends in immigration law that we see emphasized in this bill and proposals that have been lobbied by companies on both sides of the aisle um, and through the halls of Congress for the last several months and years. As we've said before, this is extremely important because even if Congress ultimately fails to pass this particular version of CIR, some of the key proposals in this bill, including those that can change how companies will conduct their business, could still end up being implemented or being considered law, even if it's not enacted into law, such as through U.S. CIS regulations or memos which will end up being the way we all practice law as lawyers and as HR people and as in-house counsel. So I promise you that even if no, no new bill is passed, we are going to be providing you some wonderful key insights which will be extremely helpful for you and me and for all of us as we continue to figure out what is going to change and what is going to happen in the world of immigration. Joining me in today's panel, two of our brilliant attorneys and my amazing colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm. I have Joel Janovich and Kevin Andrews, both of whom have been working closely in following Congress and the Senate as these uh, different versions of the bill on a daily basis. On some days, I remember we would discuss how there were over 60 amendments to the Senate Bill 744 in one single day. So just to give you a very brief overview, the bill actually is divided into five main sections uh, or titles, as they call them. Title I deals with border security. Title II deals with immigrant visas or green card, as we colloquially refer to it. Title III is interior enforcement. Title IV reforms to the non-immigrant or NIV programs, non-immigrant visa programs. And then Title V talks about jobs for youth. So, uh, Kevin, will you just briefly go over Title I? 
Yes, thank you, Sheila. Absolutely. Uh, for the most part, Title I does not directly impact uh, employers uh, and small businesses, but deals primarily with border security measures and including an, a, a significant increase in resources for securing the southern border. As many people know, watching the news is a source of controversy with the overall comprehensive immigration reform framework. Uh, so that provision of the bill deals with giving uh, resources like helicopters, drones, radar, de and radiation detective, uh, detection systems, to, and, and most of all, personnel, CBP personnel, Customs and Border Protection personnel assigned to watch and monitor the border. So that stuff doesn't seem very related to, you know, our core, uh, our, our core clientele, but um, what's most relevant is that uh, there are fees associated with, or, or costs associated with uh, implementing all of these, this new infrastructure with enforcement and, and border protection. So the burden for paying these fees is primarily going to fall on two parties. One, the foreign nationals, especially those who are uh, currently undocumented that will be going for uh, the, the path to citizenship that we'll be talking about briefly. And then also employers who hire those uh, hire, uh, foreign nationals, including those that are undocumented. So to that end, we'll be discussing the new fees and the increased fee structure uh, later in this broadcast and how that uh, you know, contributes to uh, what employers can expect with the passage of this new bill. Well, that seems no surprise here because it's always like employers and employees are slapped on. Anytime there's any change in immigration law, it's like, aha, how can we get you? And so, Joel, will you just very briefly touch upon what are titles two and three and four going to touch upon? Right. Well, so we're going to be spending most of our teleconference talking about titles two and four, the immigrant and non-immigrant visa categories. Um, I just want to briefly talk about title three, which deals with interior enforcement. Um, probably the most significant change in Title III is that within five years, all U.S. employers would be required to sign up for a, and start using E-Verify. Um, currently, for most employers, it's a voluntary system, but this would become mandatory for everyone. Well, it's voluntary, but many are strongly, encouraged. it's a strong <laughs> suggestion because they're encouraged because then that's how you get your STEM extensions, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly, right. Mm -hmm. um, and so... If it passes, again, everyone would start having to use it. Uh, another big provision in that, that could impact employers, hopefully would not, but there would be a huge increase in civil penalties for violations related to employers hiring undocumented workers um, and also for failure to comply with document verification rules. Um, a lot of the penalties have been tripled, even quadrupled for violation. So th that's the, the probably the area that's going to impact employers for the most part for Title III. Thank you very much, Joel. Okay, so just kind of following on with the, the discussion, when Joel said Title II, which deals with immigrant visas, so we're going to touch upon a number of issues which would directly impact you as employers, um, others which would typically only be dealt with by the employers in the sense that it would allow the foreign national to work in the U.S. Uh, if the foreign national does not have valid work authorization. Perhaps the most controversial, widely discussed provision in the Senate Bill 744 is the creation of what they call the RPI, or Registered Provisional Immigrant Status. As most of you have likely heard, foreign nationals who are currently unlawfully present in the U.S. and who entered prior to December 31st, 2011. So that's not even like a year and a half, you know, approximately less than two years ago, would be potentially eligible to adjust to RPI status. And of course, this cutoff date has a lot of people getting very upset because they're like, that's way too close. That's many people who are not going to 
um, you know, people still coming in. But I think the Congress and the Senate, I guess, wanted to have a cutoff date, which makes sense from a legislation point of view. Second, we will go into all the details of this program. But in short, what this essentially means is that qualifying individuals would be able to apply for work and travel authorization and many years in the, and many years in the future assuming various conditions are satisfied they would be able to apply for the green card so it's a long path to obtaining permanent resident status for these uh, individuals who are not in status uh, kevin if i could have you go over some of the other key provisions Thank you, Sheila. So there are several different structural shifts in the immigrant visa program in addition to the registered provisional status program, one of which includes the creation of the DREAM Act, which was designed to allow lawful status for certain students who are currently in the United States unlawfully. This was a, The DREAM Act is a, a bill that had seen some movement in Congress in the past, but died, and now we're seeing its resurgence through the comprehensive bill. In addition to the DREAM Act, we're seeing the creation of the Blue Card Program, which is work authorization for farm workers that eventually can lead to uh, the, the uh, path to a green card. The new program would also eliminate two visa categories that we have currently. One is the family-based four category, which allows U.S. citizens to sponsor their siblings for a green card. And the other is the diversity visa program. Both of these would be replaced with a two, two merit-based green card systems that would allow foreign nationals to apply for a green card based on a point type of system. And then finally, another significant structure, uh, structural change we see is how the immigrant visas are going to be allocated. One such change would be the elimination of the per-country limits for employment-based visa card, uh, uh, green cards, which is a big, uh, it's a big change for people from the high-demand countries like China, Mexico, Philippines, and India. So currently, foreign nationals from those countries with the extended, have extended waits because of the high demand from their respective countries. So the shift, particularly for many of our listeners who are Indian nationals, can significantly take uh, the wait time from you know, many decades, what we're seeing statistically now, to perhaps just a few years. Joel, and what are the other provisions that might interest our listeners? Well, the new law is going to exempt a lot of foreign nationals uh, with employment-based petitions from the worldwide levels or numerical limitations on immigrant visas altogether. And what that means is that the people that qualify wouldn't have to concern themselves with the monthly visa bulletin at all. Uh, instead, what they're going to be able to do is once the I-140 is approved, if they're abroad, they could file for, for consular processing right away. Uh, if they're in the U.S., they could even file the 45 concurrently with the I-140 if they wish to. And so the list of foreign nationals who would be exempted now from the, form, uh, from the numerical limitations, it's a pretty long list. But just to start off, you have the derivative beneficiaries of, of employment-based categories. So if you're the spouse or the child of the principal who's applying for, let's say, an EB-2 case, you would not be counted against the numbers. Um, all EB-1 cases, all current EB-1 cases, would no longer be included. So that is ex aliens of extraordinary ability, uh, the professors, outstanding professors and researchers, and you also have the multinational executives and managers as well. And then this is nice, the doctorate degree holders from an institution of higher education in the U.S. or the foreign equivalent, they would not be counted against the numerical limits as well. Wow, that would be a substantial increase in the number of immigrant visas. Kevin, and what are the other categories? 
Right. There are several others. So in addition, there are physicians who have completed their foreign residence, residency requirements or obtained the, the waiver. So your J-1 physicians, uh, they're also exempt. And also individuals with advanced degrees in STEM fields, so our science, technology, engineering, and math fields, who have earned a master's degree or higher in one of those STEM fields from a U.S. institution of higher education is also going to see an uh, uh, exemption here as well. And then so is premium processing available then for all of these categories? Yeah, so in addition to in increasing the supply through all of these provisions, including that one visa per family instead of per person rule, there's also some streamlined processing available because premium processing will be an option available for all employment-based immigrant petitions, and importantly, the administrative appeals of those petitions as well. So as we've seen here at the Murthy Law Firm, sometimes cases are denied for legally or factually erroneous reasons, and we can seek a quick resolution through filing an appeal, but now requesting premium processing, which is not an option we have right now. That's amazing, because right now we're waiting, as Kevin just alluded to it, two or three years for getting an answer on an appeal, and sometimes employers think it's not even worth uh, going through that employers and employees and let's just go ahead and either file a fresh petition or we depending on the situation we strategize accordingly and then it creates a new category of EB6 which is an investor category sort of like the entrepreneurial category that we previously had under the EB5 program but a variation of it and under this new EB6 category it allows foreign nationals who have a significant ownership in a US business or who are employed as senior executives in the business and who have a significant role in the founding or early stage growth of the enterprise to Joel. Well, just to look at some of the requirements for this EB-6, it's pretty interesting because uh, a lot of people may be familiar with the EB-5 program that requires a large investment. The EB-6 takes a different route. So what you have to show is that the, the four nationals been in the U.S. for at least two years in lawful status and in the three years prior to filing, they have to show that they've had a significant ownership in a business that has created at least five jobs and has received $500,000 in venture capital uh, or other investments. And just to clarify, that means you don't necessarily have to personally invest it. You could have received it from, say, angel investors. Um, the other uh, requirement, the other option for the requirement is that you've created five jobs and generated $750,000 in annual revenues within the U.S. Uh, in the past two years prior to filing. So you can go through either one of those routes to, to qualify for EB-6. This and is a know, fascinating, really fascinating. Right, and I was going to say what's even interesting, more interesting about the EB-6 program is that they even relax the requirements even more for those foreign nationals who have, who have obtained the advanced STEM degree here in the United States. So continuing to have an incentive for attracting the best and the brightest not only to be educated here but to apply their innovative their their innovation and their accomplishments here in the United States so uh, for for those people who have those advanced stem degrees the requirements are, are adjusted a little bit they have to have created at least four full-time jobs and receive a qualified investment of at least half a million dollars or three full-time jobs and uh, generated at least $500,000 within a two-year period. So they're creating a lot of different options because, as we all know, and as Sheila can probably personally attest to, the creation of a small business does not follow a, uh, a static path. It's very dynamic, and this program is sort of uh, indicative of that. It's, it's, it's very, very fascinating because that is one of the big criticisms leveled against the current administration and c Congress is that our EB-5 program basically excludes a lot of very smart, bright entrepreneurs who 
can't magically come up with $1 million and create 10 jobs. Um, and so this really expands the horizon, which is fantastic. And let's move on then to Title IV, which is the non-immigrant visa category program, NIVs, that we've talked about, that I briefly mentioned earlier. So what it would do is the H-1B cap would be raised from the current 65000 to 115000 per fiscal year, which is October 1 through September 30th. And then, based upon demand, it could almost be like a sliding scale. The limit could be raised further up to 180000 per year, which is almost three times of what we have now, so double to three times. But they're saying that the master's cap would be increased a little bit less from 20000 to 25000 and it limits the master's cap to only cases being filed for a STEM occupation, and the STEM occupation must be included in the Department of Education classification of instructional programs within the groups for computer and information sciences and support, engineering, mathematics, and statistics, biological and biomedical sciences and physical sciences, because that is where we have found traditionally over the last maybe 10 to 20 years, as America has grown to be the world leader in technology, this is where we have a huge uh, gap uh, in um, the supply and demand uh, portion of it. And Joel, what are the other, other? Uh, oh, did you want to sp say something, uh, that yeah, Kevin? Just, just a point of clarification uh, with what they're saying here with the uh, classification of instructional programs or the uh, many students would know this as the SIP code. So right now when you're trying to get an extension for STEM, uh, a STEM OPT extension so you can get that additional time beyond the 12-month limit, it's only for people who have programs with that, that CIP or SIP code. So the new reform bill is basically saying you need th your, your academic program, whether it actually qualifies for STEM needs to have one of those SIP codes, the CIP code from, you know, like on the I-20. So uh, there, there, there's a structure to what constitutes a STEM degree, and it's basically identical to what applies for OPT STEM extensions right now. So just to Thank you, that. Kevin. Thank you. And Joel, I know there's some exciting parts. Yes, I think a lot of H-1B workers will be excited. Uh, the H-4 spouses would be eligible to apply for employment authorization. Currently, Basically, the spouse comes and all that to work, um, and with the new law, they would be able to get an EAD. And if I could just say something, I met a woman at one of the events uh, recently out in the community when I was there, and she actually went into major depression and had major problems and actually made a movie on uh, trying to convince Congress to allow H-4 spouses to work. Um, and, and it was very touching and moving to see her. Um, she was almost on the edge of taking her own life. I mean, it was, it was very dramatic and so to see how she was able to channel her energies, I'm sure she and a whole host of thousands of people will be very, very excited well, I think with this if, provision. If this bill passes, she, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that should go uh, pay for that, pay to watch that movie and thank her for, for her work. Um, we have a way to go, but hopefully this will pass. Um, there are some other provisions that will help H-1B workers. They would be given a 60-day grace period after termination of employment, uh, during which time they would be considered in lawful status, and they could file for a change of status, an extension of status. Um, they could even uh, do an adjustment of status if their if their priority date became current for an, uh, a pending for a, a approved I-140. Um, it would also allow for visa revalidation from within the U.S. for most non-immigrant visa categories, including H&L. So rather than 
having to go abroad to apply for a new visa, um, or if you're planning a trip abroad and you know you're going to have to make a pit stop for a new visa, instead it's going to let you basically renew from within the U.S. There is also going to be a change in the DOL system for how they make prevailing wage determinations. So instead of the four wage levels that they currently have, the DOL would only use three levels. Uh, the agency would be using a brand new formula for making the wage determinations. And this is could be a big provision. Uh, prior to filing the LCA, the employers are going to be required to make a good faith effort to fill the position with a U.S. worker, and we'll go more into that in a moment. Um, and one of the requirements is going to be that the employers are going to have to post the job opening on a specially designed DOL website that they're going to be creating just for this purpose. And for those who don't know, of course, the DOL is the U.S. Department of Labor. We're so used to acronyms and sections of the law, sometimes we forget. Uh, but I'm sure most of you were aware of that. And Kevin, what are the other issues dealing specifically with H-1B dependent employers? Right. So H-1B dependent employers are going to have some uh, some restrictions that the non-H-1B non dependent employers have. For one, they're going to be required to pay a minimum of a level two wage. So as Joel mentioned, there are going to be three levels instead of four. Presumably, we can expect that the overall impact to that will probably be a slight increase in the required wages to H-1 workers. Uh, but for dependent employers in particular, it has to ex be at least a level two wage. Notably, H-1B dependent employers under this new bill would be prohibited from outplacing, outsourcing, leasing, or, quote, otherwise contracting for services or placement of, end quote, H-1Bs by H-1B dependent employers. So this means that contracting out to, and to client sites, to mid-vendors, if you're an H-1B dependent employer, would be prohibited. Non-H-1B dependent employers may still be able to place to end clients, uh, but they will be required to pay a $500 fee per outplaced worker in addition to a whole other host of fees that we'll be talking about in a second. But notably, H-1B dependent worker, uh, employers are not permitted to outsource their, their workers to end clients. So the uh, and, and as as one we can imagine this is going to be something that will be of great concern to particularly IT consulting business firms who rely on this business model to survive that's an understatement Absolutely. they're very very upset as you can imagine Absolutely so uh, from 2015 until 2024, H-1B dependent employers with 50 or more employees would be required to pay an extra $5,000 in fees if they have 30 to 50% of its employees in H or L status, H-1B or L-1B status. And from 2015 to 2017, they must pay an additional $10,000 per application, per petition rather, if 50 to 75% of them are in H or L status. So H-1B dependent employers would be prohibited from also displacing U.S. workers for 180 days before and after the LCA filing. And you know, the, 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 this consulting company provision is of such grave concern to many, many major companies in the country, uh, many of whom actually uh, have already contacted the U.S., you know, Commerce Secretary, the Department of State, you know, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and now John Kerry, the Indian government, for example, the Prime Minister has been in talk, senior level talks, because they are so concerned that this will affect certain countries like India and uh, they're some of their major companies because one of their largest billions of dollars worth of uh, revenues in foreign currency and trade is in 
people that are being sent from countries like India. So it's a huge, it's a huge, huge, big deal. This also, this title also creates a new category separate from what Kevin just explained as the H-1B dependent employer called H-1B skilled worker dependent employer, um, which applies to employers that have at least one five fifteen percent of its ONET job zone four and five positions that are filed by H-1B workers. The H-1B skilled worker dependent classification, in this, the employer could be a skilled worker dependent, but not H-1B dependent, or vice versa. Of course, an employer could be both the skilled worker dependent employer and an H-1B dependent employer. For example, a company may have 100 employees, 10 of whom are in positions that are zone four and five. Of those 10 workers, let's say two are on H-1B, which means that 20% of the workers in job zone four and five positions are on H-1B. This company would then be considered H-1B skilled worker dependent, even though they're clearly not an H-1B dependent employer. Um, so, I mean, you can see how it starts to go down a really scary, slippery slope, which may affect a lot of major, major companies in the United States that have a huge technology team where certain levels of positions that are used by their tech workers may be different than some of their other lines workers or, you know, other employees that are at different levels. I think it's worth noting, Sheila, that uh, as, as a general rule, like the IT community that we work with, typically most of those positions are job zone uh, at least four and, and, and a lot of them five. So I think we could expect to see that the H-1B skilled worker dependent employer category is going to affect virtually everyone in the, uh, in the IT consulting industry for sure and also other professional occupations. And Joel? Um I just want to talk a, a little bit more about, about this provision. It's a big change, and one thing these employees are going to have to keep in mind is that if they are, as we mentioned earlier, they're going to have to do uh, good faith recruitment of U.S. workers for these positions prior to filling them with an H-1B worker. However, only H-1B skilled worker dependent employers would actually be required to offer the job opening to any U.S. worker who applies if the workers equally or better equally or better qualified for the position. The other types of employers, H-1B dependent or non-H-1B dependent employers, would not necessarily have to offer the job to the U.S. worker. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is that H-1B skilled worker dependent employers that are not also H-1B dependent are going to be prohibited from displacing U.S. workers for 90 days before and after the LCA filing. Gosh, this is so confusing with the H-1B skilled worker. I'm almost tempted to say we should use the terms skilled worker dependent employer and then H-1B dependent employer because when you use the word, when you use the term H-1B before both, it sort of really makes it a little more confusing. And right. if we feel this way, I can't imagine how somebody who's juggling a million other things as an employer or HR person or in-house counsel is going to be able to figure all of this out. Uh, Kevin, what about the fees? So we, we had mentioned this kind of throughout the entire presentation today, but there are going to be new and increased fees that are associated with this new regimen. 
one of which is adding a $1,000 fee to the PERM labor certification process. So that initial stage one of the green card process of filing the PERM application, if you're sponsoring somebody for a permanent green card, right now is uh, a free service. You just submit it to the Department of Labor. This will add a $1,000 fee to that. There's also an additional fee of $1,250 per H-1B or L-1 petition for employers with up to 25 full-time equivalent employees and $2,500 per H-1B or L-1 petition for employers that have more than 25 full-time equivalent employees. This is so crazy. It's almost like employers are simply hiring foreign nationals to play a game. I mean, the fact of the matter that we all know is that there are not sufficient highly qualified skilled workers and technical workers in America, which is the only reason most of the employers are even interested in hiring in, uh, foreign national employees with STEM degrees and masters in computer science, et cetera. And the, f the fact also is that if it's already costing thousands and thousands of dollars in additional fees. And so to slap on more and more fees and more and more, um, you know, it's almost like a penalty. It's like a punishment, the fact that you're hiring foreign nationals. And the fact is, if we had people, we wouldn't be looking at, you know, we don't look to bring in more artists from around the world necessarily. Uh, we don't look to bring in English teachers because we have enough in other areas. So it's it's kind of sad that there's almost like a blinders. It's almost like they're not aware or they're clueless or they think this is some kind of gamesmanship. Uh, I guess a silver lining to this black cloud for most of you as employers is that the exceptions to many of these rules are if you are a nonprofit education and research institution you would be exempt from any of these provisions, including some of the added fees and the H-1B dependent restrictions. And if the employer, which may again protect many of you that are looking to actually allow people to file for permanent residence, i.e. intending immigrants in H-1 or L-1 status would be treated as U.S. workers for many of these provisions, including when determining whether an employer is an H-1B dependent or a skilled worker dependent employer. So that is a nice silver lining to this really thick, dark black cloud, Joel. Right. No, th this is really going to be the way that employers that are currently consulting companies or other companies that would be really negatively impacted, it, it could be the saving grace, you so to say. Um, if you have an intending immigrant, and you're going to have to uh, bear with me, I'm going to go with a little bit of math here, and then I will explain it. But it defines how intending immigrant is determined. Um, and obviously, those are going to be people who are foreign nationals who intend to live and work per, uh, permanently in the U.S. as demonstrated by a pending or approved labor certification or a labor certification application that's been pending for at least uh, for, for longer than one year. And then here comes the math. If the, empl the employer has to show that they have had labor certifications filed uh, during the year before filing that particular labor certification for uh, that they, they had filed immigrant visa petitions for 90% of current employees who are beneficiaries of labor certifications approved during the one year ending six months before the petition in question was filed. So just to basically <laughs> simplify that and sum it all up, Without going into too many details regarding the math here, if you are routinely sponsoring your foreign national workers for, uh, if you're filing I-140s, perm cases, um, or even an EB-1 case on behalf of these employees, 
Generally speaking, you can treat them as U.S. workers. You're not going to be considered H-1B dependent. You're not going to be a a skilled worker dependent, um, Sheila's new phrase for this, because you you have basically demonstrated that you really need to keep these employees for the long term. And so in that respect, the government will not penalize you for these new provisions. Wonderful. Thank you, Joel. And Kevin, are there any other non-immigrant visa categories that they're thinking of including here? Yes, Sheila. The the comprehensive bill would create some new non-immigrant visa categories, including, excuse me, an executive and manager visa, which allows a foreign national to enter the United States and perform certain uh, activities related to management for up to 90 days. Employees of multinational corporations in that instance would be allowed to enter for up to 180 days to observe operations and participate in certain activities, again, related to executive uh, management or executive level responsibility. And the other one is the creation, interestingly, of a non-immigrant investment visa called the X visa, which is available to foreign nationals who, in the three years prior to filing, have had a venture capital or other investors devote $100,000 or more to that foreign national's business, or the foreign national's business resulted in the creation of no fewer than three jobs and generated $250,000 or more in annual revenue arising from business that's conducted in, in the United States. So. Got it. And just to distinguish it, this is different than the immigrant visa, con- the stuff that we discussed earlier with the EB-6. This is the non-immigrant, the non-immigrant. Uh, category. So for many of you who may or may not be aware of the alphabet soup in immigration law, right now we have ABCDEFG right through till the V visa. So we don't have, you know, after the V so some of the proposals had talked about it. So now they're creating the X. They had thought of creating the Z before with Obama and McCain when Obama's first term as president, when John McCain and Obama tried to show that they were united on immigration. But at this point, X is the next. Uh, we have a W in here, too. That's for agricultural <laughs> workers kind of outside our, our scope here. But right. Absolutely. So we have the more. W and then the X. So mm-hmm. there's only two more left. And then we would have to start like in those right regulations. A-A-B-B. My God. I mean, and in but also don't forget that even in H, you have the H1, you know, you had the H1A, you have the H1B, the H1C, H1B1. You know, you have sub, sub, sub categories. It's 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 really crazy. Uh, and so if we can, I mean, being very sensitive to the time issues, because we try to wrap these discussions up in 45 minutes to help you really understand what's going on. Um, we want to try and summarize, if we can, in the next five or 10 minutes briefly, uh, the benefit of our discussion and why we think it's so important for you to actually go through and listen to this. Yes, the bill itself is several hundreds of pages long. So obviously, we haven't covered every little nitty gritty of the bill in this 30 to 45 minute teleconference. However, we do want to uh, take a moment to discuss what this bill signifies, even if it never ends up getting passed into law, because um, it uh, basically lays out the direction the current administration wishes to go. And so, Joel, you know, what is this? Uh, what what does this end up becoming in most cases? Well, I think a perfect example is if you look back a couple of years ago in 2010 and 2011. Uh, the Senate and President Obama wanted to pass the DREAM Act to help students that were here without lawful status and basically give them a route to get a green card. They were not able to get it through the Congress. And so instead, what happened was in 2012, uh, President Obama issued a directive called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. You may have heard of it, but DACA was basically an end around Congress where he was able to do basically a watered-down version of the DREAM Act. It's it's in effect. It's not, quote-unquote, law in the sense that there was no 
law passed by Congress, but it essentially functions as a law. It gives these people the ability to work and travel. Um, and there's very good reason to believe that even if this bill does not pass the House, which is definitely a good possibility, even if nothing gets passed, the administration could still issue memos. They could have different ways of enacting types of regulation that do a lot of these types of things. And I think the focus is probably going to be on enforcement, as we have been seeing, and on these companies that have, especially these tech companies, that are outsourcing the employees to, to uh, as consultants. And these Joel, that's an mm-hmm. excellent, excellent point. I think sometimes we forget how even the officers that are reviewing these petitions. I remember years ago when there was no law, they came up with reg, you know, what they called proposed regulations, which were never implemented, but we saw national interest waiver and IW petitions being routinely um, looked at under the microscope of these proposed mm-hmm. regulations that were never even final uh, regulations. So it's interesting. Any other examples, uh, Kevin? Right. Well, I think Joel is absolutely right that we're seeing that the direction, part of the new policy, even if the bill isn't passed, is, is fairness and equity to you know certain people who uh, who need a path here, but also increased enforcement, particularly with employers. And we've also seen that with, in recent years, the, the government has dramatically increased the number of perm cases that it audits. So we're seeing more site visits for H-1B employers than previously, than uh, even during the Bush administration. Uh, so the government clearly does not like businesses that use the consulting model in IT that involves unsupervised off-site employment with H-1 workers. We've seen that as a policy shift with the agency. So even, you know, no matter what happens with this new bill, these are trends that we're seeing that are either going to be incorporated into a new regime or just implemented with the current policy. Makes sense. And, you know, as we've all alluded to uh, in the last few minutes, the new CIR uh, bills, law, whatever, if it ever passes, would actually provide additional tools to the government. But whether it's passed or not, it seems clear that the various government agencies will continue to find ways to go after an employer with incorrect or improper records and companies that place employees off-site. And so as employers, rather than being reactive, our recommendation, of course, is always for us and our clients to be proactive, which is sort of what we're doing with this teleconference and in our monthly teleconferences and in the memos and in the articles and in the position we're taking, which is to recommend that you as employers proactively take take steps now to be ahead of the curve. So especially when you're dealing with the types of activities that the government is focusing on, uh, um, both Kevin and Joel mentioned consulting companies, that now you need to develop a system that shows that you are supervising your offsite workers. You cannot take a completely hands-off approach and assume that the government will continue to let this slide. And we already saw that starting from the January 2010 H-1B employer-employee relationship Pearson, Pearson memo that totally changed the landscape for H-1B workers in the consulting company model. Kevin? Yeah, Sheila, in addition to documenting the supervision of off-site workers, particularly for our, our IT consulting firms, the company companies should definitely take other proactive steps, such as self-auditing public access uh, files, self-auditing their I-9s, making sure the I-9 process is conducted completely with the new I-9 form that is now in existence. So uh, just constant training with HR or whoever the people that are involved in dealing with public access files, I-9 
documentation and compliance, I think, are the, 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 the areas of focus for the government in this new climate, regardless of whether or not the bill passes. So these are the areas that company need, companies need to focus on to make sure they continue to be proactive uh, in this new climate. Sure, sure. And, you know, just sort of as a quick aside, when I was conducting an I-9 seminar recently with one of my colleagues at the Multi Law Firm, uh, we learned uh, how some very important major companies that have very, very smart, knowledgeable people in-house were doing business that was not necessarily what the law allows. And so they came in to see clarification and, and make things happen in a much more um way that was compliant with the law. Um, Also, we want to tell you that whatever happens, you as employers need to recognize that this bill highlights what is likely to come in U.S. immigration law, whether or not the Senate Bill 744 is actually passed into law. And so as employers, we all now need to take steps to position ourselves so that our petitions are much more likely to get approved that we will um, less likely hopefully have to deal with requests for evidence and notice of, notices of intentions to deny, and that we're confident that all of the actions that we take will continue to protect our business, our companies, our employers uh, with the relevant government agencies and retain our extremely valued, highly skilled workers that are very, very difficult to find. As always, I say that the Murthy Law Firm is your partner as we continue to ride in the waves of uncertainty in this ocean of complex and nuanced undercurrents that exist in immigration law. How's that for some poetry here? Uh, We closely partner with you to navigate um, in uncharted waters, and we look forward to continuing to be your guide, your mentor, your friend, your partner, and your immigration lawyers with the world's best immigration law team and the world's best resource, which was recently again reinforced in the video that was released and in the New York Times article from the last week of June, which was again, I think, uh, taken up by Newsweek and the Daily Beast as being the leading, the world's most popular legal website. So thank you so much for taking time and joining us in today's discussion. We look forward to continuing to work with you as we Uh, continue to keep ourselves abreast of the latest changes in immigration law. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.